Welcome to Friendship Vallejo. I'm Pastor Justin, and this is the place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. I pray you've been blessed by it. I've been really on my face for you. I planned my work, I planned my sermons out, Revelation chapter three. I planned my sermons out months in advance. So I had this plan last year, and uh, and 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 it's amazing the response to hear positively and negatively to this series. And so I'm grateful for those of you who are tarrying with me through this series, um, and I pray that it's been a blessing to you as we see that there's, there's a lot of good things in Revelation as well. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse number 1. So we are at that midway point of the churches in Asia Minor, and uh, I think you're going to see how God's voice shifts a little bit as we continue this journey in, in modern-day Turkey. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you won't know what time I'll come. Yet a few people in Sardis have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me dressed in white, for they're worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of God for the people of God. The people said... Amen. You may be seated, even in the presence of the Lord. We're in our letter to the church of Sardis. I was thinking about how to get into this letter. So my wife and I, um, we purchased a home. We live in American Canyon now, and uh, right over the border. It's, we're enjoying it. And um, we were installing a security system. And I remember it was funny because this time we had a professional installer come out because my first house, when I was in Rhode Island, I told my wife, you know, I'm one of those guys. I try to be like a guy guy. And I'm like, yeah, babe, I'll put the security system in. And so my first house, we put the security system in the house and I put everything all around the house. And uh, it was crazy because one day I was in the basement and uh, an animal got in the basement. And I'm like, normally I had this like monitor, this AI, because I'm a tech guy. I had this AI monitor that uh, it would tell me if an animal came in. And what I didn't recognize is that this animal had come past my blind spot. So this, mount, this squirrel got in my basement, right? And it was got in my basement because while I had this whole system that I put in my house that I installed, I didn't take account for all of my blind spots. And uh, if I only had taken account for those. So we got this new system in our new house, and we made sure that all the cameras were pointed in different areas to test are blind spots because it's not what you see that can kill you it's it's your blind spots the squirrel got in the bottom and the basement got into our pantry started eating through food in our pantry because i didn't check my blind spots the squirrel got in scared my wife scared me had to set traps had to call an exterminator had to get all these different things in our house because i didn't at the beginning make sure i covered my blind spots satan doesn't come through the front door. Satan simply wants to find your blind spots. And Sardis, what Jesus is writing this letter to them in great love, as he tells them, Sardis, listen, you think you're alive. You think you got the security system. You think you got everything in place. But Sardis, you got some blind spots. Because when I look at you, I don't see you as alive. I see you as dead. 
And I want you to be honest with yourself, Sardis, before the wrong thing gets into your life. I said this this entire series. The devil is not omniscient. The devil is not omnipresent. The devil is just looking for an opportunity. And he comes in like a thief in the night. And that's why Jesus uses this language. Because one of the greatest challenges, I think, in our Christian walk right now is what it means to be in the world but not of the world. And really for me, I've stopped asking that question. I think the better question to ask is, do I look any different than the world around me? And for years, we've used this language of legalism and liberty as a license and a pendulum swinging of legalism, of a course of being a system that we think that the more do's and don'ts that we do in our Christian faith then means the more saved we are and what we can cho- who we can choose and pick and choose who goes to heaven and pick and choose who goes to hell. So we made Christianity a list of check off and check boxes. If I read my Bible, if I go to church, if I pray, if I'm a good person, if I let somebody in at the lane at the light, if I, let, if I stop on a yellow light instead of waiting for it to turn red, if I don't speed this week, that means Jesus loves me. We have complicated Christianity. And it's an extreme list of to-dos and to-don'ts. And then on the other side, we make sure that because of our to-dos and don'ts, we think that because we do some good stuff, that grace is going to be free. So I can keep doing whatever I want because Jesus is just done enough for me. Can I tell you something? You're the, when you said yes to Jesus, a licensed Christian has a conscience. Sin gives you a conscience so that you don't do the same thing again. Grace is not a license to keep sinning. Grace is what con- the conscious you have that you don't want what Satan gives is guilt and shame and frustration to be welcome in your life. So you ought to feel some places and understand and recognize when your pride, when your anger, when your arrogance, when your guilt, when your shame rises up. But the problem with Western Christianity and American triumphalism is that because of growth and success, we have made being in Christ's image, being the president being capitalism, being triumphalism, and it's not. Christ admonishes us that do you've got to look different than the world. What does that mean? That's what Jesus says in the Sardis. He says, I want, don't want you to have a false sense of security because you think you've attained success in the world. I want you to have success in me. It's like this, how do we get there, Pastor Justin? I coach football on Saturdays. My son started playing football, and last week we had this game with the Vikings. And so I bring the kids in, we do this Viking roar. And so we were losing this game. And, you know, for me, I love football. So you don't put me on a football field, I'm going to win. I don't care what nobody says. I don't care how, I don't care if it's a bunch of babies that can't walk. I'm going to win the football game. So I bring these five-year-olds over, and we were losing because this offense was just going crazy, you know, with five-year-old offense. And so I bring them in like we're coaching a bunch of high schoolers, and I ask them, I was so frustrated, and I looked at them because I realized you're five years old. So then I said, I just need you to try. They said, what? I said, how big can you get? So all the kids got a roar. We got our Viking roar. Everybody got big. And I said, listen, I want your try to be as big as your roar. How big is your try when it comes to being a Christian? Are you just doing what your mama told you to do or what grandmama told you to do? Are you living out the two or three sermons you liked from a pastor that you served under years ago? Or are you trying daily to pick up a heavy cross and follow Jesus? Let's uncover our blind spots so our try can be as big as the grace that we receive. 
Sardis was like many cities under the time of Roman rule. It was a military hotspot. It was a place of heavy taxation and a military presence. And the reason being was there was a big temple to Caesar and a big temple to Artemis in, 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 in Sardis. So when you're giving taxation, you are worshiping Caesar. And I want to be clear, Caesar was not like the IRS. Caesar is not just a form of government. For them at this time in Sardis, Caesar is God. For a Christian at that time to give tax to Caesar, that's why Jesus comes along and talks about the coin when it comes to Caesar. Who is God to you? Am I God or is Caesar God? Sardis was a wealthy city located on the east and west commercial route in Lydia. So they had a lot of traffic, they had a lot of money, and they had a lot of commerce. And in the center of the city, not only did you have the temple to Caesar, not only did you have the temple to Artemis, but you had a synagogue for Jews. It was a safe haven for Jewish exiles, and there was a massive gymnasium for everyone to work out in, along with a massive mall in the center of Sardis. And as we've learned in this series, idolatry was rampant. The Temple of Artemis, one of the fourth largest complexes in this region, was built in the fourth, the fourth century. And if you remember Artemis, remember Artemis, she was the multi-breasted god. If you remember Apollo from last week, the god of war, Artemis on the other side, she was the twin sister of Apollo and the son of Zeus and Leto, according to Greek mythology. And so they had a massive temple, and they believed that if you go in and you rub the multi-breasted god, you receive harvest, you receive fertility. Pre women who were looking to become pregnant, relationships are looking to become pregnant, they wouldn't go to the synagogue, they wouldn't talk about Jesus, they would go rub the temple of the goddess Artemis, give a sacrifice to the goddess of Artemis, and then as you exit, will participate in orgies as you exited out of the temple because that was the way you solidified your belief that Artemis was going to allow you to have children. So Sardis is an interesting place because it wasn't just a place of it wasn't just a place of worship. It was a massive place of wealth. To show you how serious and how serious the worship of Artemis was, take your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Let me show you something. Because what happened is Paul came along and wanted to destroy this idol. The people wanted to get rid of this idol. And in Acts chapter 19, we'll see a story of, 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 of Paul, where Paul is in Ephesus and sharing the gospel and what happens when he confronts idols. Let me tell you this. The hardest war is not like just getting through people. The hardest war is when you begin to destroy idols. And we see this in Acts chapter 19. Look at the text. So in this text, Acts chapter 19, verse number 23. Around that time rose a great disturbance about the way. Now, the way was actually the first name of the church. That's how they called themselves. Nobody knew it was like a gathering of Christians. It was the way. So disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business with the craftsmen there. And he called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business and you see in here how fellow Paul is convinced and led a large number of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. Look what he did. He said that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. There's a danger not only to our trade will lose his good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who's worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robed of her divine majesty. And when they heard this, they were furious, and they shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Archias and Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed to the theater together. Paul wanted to go before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials in the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to go to the theater. So the assembly was then in confusion. 
There was shouting. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. They shouted instructions to him. He motioned silence to make a defense for the people. And when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city declared quiet to the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know? The city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. Let me pause here. This is what happens when you confront idols. There's always a fight, there's always confusion, and the world's rules overrule God's word. Whenever you confront an idol, I want you to think about it in your own life. When you've killed an idol in your family, when you've killed an idol on your job, when you've killed an idol in your life, there's always a fight to keep it. There always will be confusion because you worshiped it, and the world's rules begin to rule over God's rules. This is the problem with creating idols. And so they'd rather get rid of Paul and Gaius than sit there and have a conversation about it because all Paul said was any God made by hand is not a God at all. This is the issue in Sardis. Sardis was home of so many silversmiths. There were silver shrines. There were people who were building so much and making so much money that here comes the prophet, here comes the Lord Jesus, and says the only God that matters is God the Father. And they said, we'd rather get rid of the prophet than to hear who God really is. How many times have you done that to God? God comes along and you sit there and tell God, God, I love you but my money. And I'd rather worship. Great is my money. Great is my paycheck. Great is my reputation. Great is what people think about me. Great is somebody else's opinion over me. And Jesus comes along and we'd rather push Jesus out than to kill that idol. Here in the temple of Artemis, they went back, um, it goes all the way back to these missionary journeys in Sardis. Sar Artemis had a whole system of how you kill animals. Everything about her was about humanity and fertility. And now with the gospel in this space, these Christians are wanting to remain Christians. But at the same time, we want to be popular in the community. So how can we navigate this together? So what the Christians began to do was they would have their name given to the government and so when they would go to the temple, there'd be certain people who were on a list that as you went into the government, you went into the temple, your name was on the list to make sure that it was okay for you to worship. Watch it because you paid a little bit of money to ensure that you could worship Jesus but also be in the world. This is the problem when Christians welcome in a place for blind spots, Satan finds an easy way to get into our lives. The people in Sardis thought they were secure because they were secure in the world. They were popular in the world. Everybody liked them in the world. They were known in the world. The things they did in the world were going to be good. The Christians thought they were good because they had some security with people. Their name were on a list. They paid a little bit of taxes, and they still said Artemis' temple can be strong. And Jesus says, there is no other God before me. How does Jesus explain this? Look at verse, look at verse number one. Takes his character, Christ's character, verse number one. To the angel of Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. Remember this. He holds the seven spirits, going back to Revelation chapter one, verse four. That's holding the seven spirits is where all of our spiritual gifts and our grace comes from. The Holy Spirit is the one who holds and controls the dispensation of spiritual gifts. Now, these words are similar to Revelation chapter one, verse four, where he says, the one who has the seven spirits. But now he has the seven spirits and the seven stars. 
In Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, I want you to notice in his hands what he has. He has the stars. The text says he's holding them in his right hand. Now, it's interesting in Revelation chapter 3, he, for the church at Sardis, he's not only holding the stars, but he's withholding the spirit. This language is so important because Jesus is showing the church at Sardis, it's one thing for me to hold the star. It's another thing for me to withhold the spirit from you. The inference here is that Jesus was not letting this church have access to the presence of the Holy Spirit. I don't want us to miss this because it's a terrible thing to come to church and Jesus holds back the Spirit. You, it's a terrible thing, church, when Jesus looks at you or looks at your church and says, I'm holding back the Spirit. Why? He tells them in verse number two, because you have misused your Spirit access. I'm holding the Spirit away from you. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, and we see this in John chapter 15. I will send a comforter to you who possesses all power in heaven and on earth. What does he say? John chapter 15, he is able to bring together the gifts of life and the ministry of those gifts are needed. And if those who minister are without gifts, it's because you have not asked for them. The angel of the church at Sardis had not been faithful to the Spirit. They sunk into the superficial they sunk into the world. They sunk into what the world thought about them. So Jesus says, great, I'm holding back the spirit from you because when I gave it to you, you didn't do things well with it. How terrible is it is for God to fire you but let you keep on working? How many churches do we see when we drive down the street are beautiful facilities that are really nice apartments because the Lord held the spirit back? Remember, Jesus is not talking to the pastor. He's talking to the angel of the church, Revelation chapter 1. The angel of the church is a supernatural deity whose responsibility is to guide the local church, meaning then that the bishop of the church of Sardis, along with the angel of the church of Sardis, had gotten more comfortable with their reputation among the people than they did with making sure that everybody was working their gifts. The bishop didn't care. The pastor didn't care. The members didn't care. And the angel didn't care because they got comfortable with a gift Less church. Here's why. Because whenever the pastor or the preacher of the gospel does not preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus, whenever we get behind this pulpit and do not preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the ability to screw up the future of an entire community. Let me say this very clear. I'm gonna just, this is Justin Lester personally. I have, since I've been preaching Revelation, I remember the first week I preached Revelation. Someone came up to me and said, are you trying to hurt me? I said, what are you talking about? I don't like you talking about sin. Every week I get emails about how this series has been insulting, how I'm trying to hurt people. Let me tell you something. If I am not faithful to preaching this text, I am not held accountable to you. I'm held accountable to Jesus. If you don't believe me, I want everyone to see Revelation 22. Like, I'm not trying to hurt anybody, but I want you to see the scriptures full and true. Because if I don't preach the gospel, I'm going to screw up the land for your children's children. And I'd rather take the bullets from you and your wounded ego than to take the bullet from Jesus. And let me show you what it is in Revelation chapter 22. Go to Revelation 22, verse number 16 through 19. Look at what Jesus says. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you as a testimony for the churches. He fulfills all the scripture. I'm the root and the offspring of Jesse. I'm the bright and morning star. The bride says, spirit and bride say, come. And the one who hears it, come. Let the one who's thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes for water, come. And look what he says in verse 18. And if anyone who hears this prophecy adds anything to it, I will add plagues to them. 
That's in the Bible. And then he says, verse 19, and if anyone takes words away from this prophecy, I'll take away the share they have to the tree of life. I love y'all so much, but I love my future a whole lot more. There have been times, I want you to see, like, where I could do this. Like, I want to be really clear, because I know Negroes that do. I could get up here for an hour and abuse the scriptures for my own benefit. I could. I could get up here and beat you over the head with a bunch of scriptures. I'm really smart. I don't toot it much, but I'm really smart. I got these bars. There's like 260 pages of writing. Like, if I really wanted to, we could misuse and abuse the scriptures. But I don't feel like doing that because I will not exempt myself from heaven for a short ego fight on earth. May I pray the rest of this series and the rest of this year and however long God calls us to be together as pastor and people, if it's one more week or ten more years, however much longer it is, I pray you know that I will not weaponize this book because my accountability is not to you, it's to the Lord. And here Jesus says, because if I do, Jesus says, I will take the spirit away. I won't waste a word of this sermon because I don't want you to miss out on the Spirit, and I don't want to miss out on the Spirit either. May we grow well enough that we want the truth of the gospel, even if it's uncomfortable. Because the places you think I'm trying to hurt you is called correction and conviction. The Lord, whom the Lord loves, he corrects. And Jesus says, because if you don't listen to the correction, let me tell you what I'll do. I'll take the spirit away because you've been unfaithful to what I've given you. If that doesn't scare you, you haven't read your Bible all the way through. And to show you how serious Jesus is taking this, look at the text. Verse 1, he says, this is character. So are we looking for a commendation, how Jesus says, I love you, how Jesus says, I see you, how Jesus says, you're doing something well. He gives them no commendation. Jesus is so frustrated with this church that he doesn't commend them for anything they've done. So he goes directly to correction. Look at the text, verse number two. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Jesus says, I know your deeds, what you do. You have a reputation, what others think about you. And what others think about you is that you're alive. But the truth is, when I think of you, Jesus says, you're dead. Because if you are basing the health of your church and your relationships based upon other people's opinions about you, Jesus says, you are worshiping what others think about you more than you are honoring what I've said over you. When they think about you, you're alive. When I think about you, you're dead. Jesus doesn't give them a commendation. He just corrects them. He condemns them because the, the heat, the Aramaic there is so powerful. He's reading their thoughts because your sin is not in what you do. Your sin is worried about the thoughts. I know many of us in this room would say, Pastor Justin, I haven't sinned all week. <laughs> I am just like, oh, my God. I am just the picture of what an angel looks like. But if Jesus were to unroll the scroll of every one of your thoughts, what places would Jesus correct you? The sin isn't in your action, it's in your daydream. Well, I'm going to back that thing up again. I said, the sin isn't in your action, it's in your daydream. Oh, no, you didn't sleep with them, but you undressed them. I ain't scared of none of y'all. I said, you did not sleep with them, but you undressed them in your mind. Oh, you didn't cuss them out with your words, but you show, ooh, ooh, you had that message in your head, and you said some four-letter words that weren't Mark, Luke, or John, 
Jesus says, if I were to enroll the scroll of your thoughts, how many, how many times did you insult my presence and other people this week? This is a big deal because Jesus doesn't just see what you do. He knows what you think. I know your deeds is an unusual phrasing. The other times we've seen this as was a good thing. But Jesus says, no, you have a cognitive dissonance here. Your name, you think you're alive, but you're dead because your reputation is about what unsaved people think about you. That you don't care about what Christ thinks about your church. So you're alive in the world, Sardis, but you're dead to me spiritually. Maybe that's why we see 200 churches closing a week. Because they're alive on Sunday in praise and worship. But there's no spirit in any of these churches. Maybe that's why we see there were three pastors last week who committed suicide because they keep trying to preach the churches that are alive on Sunday but dead all throughout the week. Maybe that's why we see the falling off of Generation Z from the local church. Maybe that's why, you know who the second largest group that's departing from the local church is? It's not through death. It's, it's baby boomers who are leaving God's church because the faith that they had was not in Jesus, but it was in somebody else's picture of faith. And now we have these beautiful buildings that are monuments of nothingness because Jesus says, Sardis, when I think about you, you think you're vibrant, but you're dead to me. William Barclay writes it like this, the church is near the danger of death when it begins to worship the past when it's, more when it's not concerned with any form of life. He says, Sardis, you've made me, Jesus, something to do and not a relationship to have. Because whenever we let denominationalism or traditionalism come in on Jesus, we crucify Jesus all over again. When you worship a particular form of worship, we crucify Jesus all over again. When how you engage with Jesus is more important than who Jesus is, we kill Jesus all over again. So the one question you've got to ask yourself is if Jesus were to write you a letter, what would he say? No, 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 no. If Jesus were to sit down and send you a letter, are you spiritually alive or are you spiritually dead? This should make us all feel it in the pits of our stomach. Do you want to come to a church that's alive where the gospel comes forth? Or do you want to be at a dead church where the gospel doesn't? The hardest fights I've ever had as a pastor in California, Rhode Island, Tennessee, were never concerning the gospel. It was all about distractions. I don't like what you wear. I don't like where you park. I don't like what color you wore. I don't like how you, where your wife sits. I don't like how your wife dresses in church. I don't like what your son wears. The hardest fights I've had as a pastor never deal with the gospel. It's always to distract us from preaching the gospel. It always comes when we're working. All frustration for me has shown up at the same time. I know Thursday at 1130, I put my phone on do not disturb, because when I'm working on my sermon, hell always loves to show up. Because the devil does not want an alive church. He wants a dead church. He wants the church to have a bigger reputation with the mayor. He wants the church to have a bigger reputation with the governor. He wants the church to have a bigger reputation with city managers. Because if you have a good reputation with Jesus, that means you have destroyed the reputation that he has with the world. Do you care more about what the world says about your faith? Or do you care about what Jesus thinks about you? If Jesus were to write you a letter, is he telling you you're alive or are you dead? So what's this exhortation? How do you fix this? Look at what he says in verse number two. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I've found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Can I shout to you? If I was going to shout today, here's the shout of this text. Jesus sees what's unfinished, and he's given me the grace to go finish it. 
Yeah, and if I was a Pentecostal church, they would have ran around the church. I'm going to say it again. Jesus shows you what's unfinished because he's giving you the grace to go finish it. Now, that was a back-arching phrase right now because a whole lot of us right now ought to be thankful that in spite of all the areas we know we haven't read our Bible, we have not been faithful, we have not practiced our gift, I'm grateful for God who will show me what's unfinished and give me the grace to go finish it. The text says, wake up and strengthen what remains because I found your deeds unfinished. He condemns them as alive but dead and says, but yet there are some people still in the church who don't like that reputation. So how do you fix it? Jesus says, remember what you've received. Remember what you've heard. Remember what's been preached to you. It's a recognition there, church, that everybody in the church has not been bitten by the reputation bug. So don't let it bite you. Can I tell you, there's always more for you than are against you. And too often we give too much energy to those who are against that we forget those who are for the gospel. Jesus says, no, this message is for the whole church. Some of you don't like what Jesus is doing. Oh, but some of you want to really see what Jesus is going to do. Some of you don't like that God is working in your life, and some of you want God to work. So Jesus says, for the rest of y'all who want to see God work, he says, I want you to strengthen what you have. I want you to hold on to what you have. I want you to trust what's been poured into you, because what you have is going to take you places eyes have never seen. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains. Strengthen those, strengthen the relationships that remain. Strengthen the people who still call you. Strengthen the relationships of the people who still text you. Strengthen the relationships of what you have. Don't fall off the boat, but strengthen what you have. And here's how I want to help you. Oh, because I'm an equal opportunity preacher. I want to take next steps. I don't like to shout it with no reason. There's an image coming up on the screen. I put together a text message list that I will, I said, Justin, I'm convicted that I'm going to send you a text message if you want to every single day to encourage you to strengthen what remains. If you text the phrase PJ Grow to 84576 every day, you're going to get a message from Pastor Justin because I want you to strengthen what remains. You're going to text PJ Grow to 84576. You're going to get a daily message from me because I I don't want you to just hold on to. I want you to wake up and strengthen what remains. I'm going to send you a scripture. I will send you a joke, whatever that is. If you text the phrase PJ Grow to 84576, because I want you to understand that Jesus is trying to get you beyond your past. Jesus is trying to get you beyond what other people think about you. Jesus is trying to get you beyond your, your, your last mistake. Jesus is trying to get you beyond your last failure. And the truth is, you have the truth because you have his word. And his word tells you the truth about himself and his his word tells you the truth about who you are, that because you have the gospel, no weapon formed against you can prosper. Because you have the gospel, you, Christ came for you. Christ died for you. Christ was buried for you. Christ was resurrected for you, and he's coming back. I wish I had a witness for you, and anybody who trusts in Jesus will be strengthened until the end that salvation has been gifted to you. You have been given the free gift of eternal life, and because of Jesus, your sin has been forgiven. Because of Jesus, you have been redeemed. Because of Jesus, you have been restored. I don't know why y'all ain't shouting, because the truth is not what they think about you. The truth is what he said. Oh, I wish I had somebody. What he said over
for you, that you have been redeemed, you have been restored, you have been reconciled, you have been saved, you have been blood washed, you have been water baptized, you have, am I talking to anybody in the building who can thank God, I'm not the lies that have been told about me, I'm the truth of what Jesus has said over me. You know this gospel, so hold on to that gospel. You know this gospel. So hold fast. My grandma said, hold to his hand. God's unchanging hand. Build your hopes not on a Facebook status. Build your hopes not on lies that are told, but build your hope on things eternal. Hold to his hand. I know that sounds crazy, but Jesus says you can hold on to being a dead place. Or you can hold on to the one who has life eternal. Because death for Christians ain't death. Death means I got brand new life. And so you can hold on to death in the world. Or you can hold on to life with me in Jesus. And I know, Pastor Justin, you don't understand my life. You don't understand my money. You don't understand my past. You don't know what people said about me. Can I show you something? So my, my family and I, we went rock climbing once. And we went rock climbing once, y'all. And they had us get on this rope. And they clipped us in on the rope. So we clipped in on the rope. And I sat there and I said, no, no, I'm an athlete. I do this stuff. I don't need anybody to clip me in. I'm rock climbing. I'm athletic enough that if I fall, I got enough fat on my body, I can bounce and be just fine on the ground. They said, no, watch this. They said, Justin, sir, we have to clip you in. Watch this. Because the clip is our insurance that if you fall, we, don't ha we already paid because you signed a waiver of liability. So, sir, clip in. And if you climb the rope and trust the clip that you're clipped into, that no matter how far you fall or how high you climb, it's already been taken care of. I'm talking to somebody in the building. The failure you've experienced, the reason it didn't kill you, because you were clipped in. The reason divorce didn't kill you, because you were clipped in. The reason sickness, am I talking to anybody, didn't kill you, is because you're clipped in. So take heed before you fall. But I thank God, am I talking to anybody in the building who can thank God? I'm going to hold on to his word. I'm hold on to what he says. I'm going to hold on to my insurance because God has me clipped in. Do you trust his word more than you trust their opinion? Do you trust his word more than you trust a review? Do you trust his word more than you trust what they've said? That's why Paul said in Romans 5, and hope makes me not ashamed. And hope makes me not scared because I trust God's word more than I trust what I hear. My prayer for some of you in the building is, God, hold me accountable to what you've told me. God, hold me accountable to the truth you've spoken on my life. Hold me accountable to the gift you've given me so that you don't hold the spirit back from me. God, hold me accountable to what you need me to do. Because some of you have not progressed forward because you don't like the assignment. But let me tell you this, you cannot have next until you finish now. That was so good. I'm going to keep going. He, he says, hold on to me. Wake up and obey. Because if not, Jesus says, I'll come like a thief in the night. It's interesting. The word there in that text, let me give you the story and I'm finished. The word there in that text when he says, I'll come like a thief in the night, goes back to an old story. So what happened on Sardis, Sardis was set up way up on a hill. It was up on this large hill. And they had this massive 12-foot wall all around the fortress where the king was. And so what happened is there was no way to get in or no way out outside of one bridge to let you into the security place. So one day, the story goes, that King Cyrus is looking to take over the, 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 the hill of Sardis. 
And so King Cyrus wanted to take over the hill. So what Cyrus did, his army stood around the mountain. They were trying to look for a weak place to get into this impenetrable space. And they noticed that this brother, one of the soldiers, dropped his hat across the wall. The man looked over the wall. Story goes, they came down off the wall, went down some secret little passageway, and there was a door, a fake door in the wall that he opened up, went and grabbed his hat, closed the door, and right there King Cyrus knew that this place looks impenetrable, but there's a weak door. And so then, in the middle of the night, Cyrus's army came right into the weakness of their door. Jesus, using this language, tells him, listen, you think you're secure, but if you don't trust me, here's what I'll do. I'll find your weakness, and I'll show up in the middle of the night. It's one thing for Satan to come in. It's another thing with the one who made you remind you of your weaknesses. I can deal with Satan because I cast out devils. I don't know how to deal with an angry Jesus. That's his exhortation. My prayer for some of us and myself is, God, protect me from your wrath. This is mature. I know if some of y'all say, I ain't coming back here again. Okay, I'm going to give you this again. God, protect me from your wrath because I don't, I can deal with Satan because I cast out devils. I can't deal with an angry Jesus. Maybe another prayer for some of you right now is, God, forgive me for being so secure in me that I have been insecure with Jesus. May God protect me from my ego. Yeah. Christians in Sardis had blurred the unique line of God, Christ's personal peace and comfort because they desired prosperity. So how do you get it right? Look at his promise, verse number four. Yet there's some people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me dressed in white, for they're worthy. The one who is victorious will be like them in white. I will never blot their name from the book of life, and I will always acknowledge them before the Father and angels. So what's the promise? Jesus says there are some who have not soiled their clothes. Here's what that means. Soiled clothes represented partnering with the wrong faith tradition in a community. And when doing so, you have then literally taken the wrong color and woven it in your clothes. Jesus says, but if you trust me, I'll keep you clean. Whew, man, if I would have hooped that, this place would have gone crazy. I'm going to say it again. Jesus says, if you trust me, I'll keep you clean. Can I tell you this? No matter the mistakes you've made, the bad decisions you've engaged in, repentance in, with Jesus gives you an opportunity for restoration and reconciliation. Jesus says, I know how dirty you really are, but if you trust me, I'll keep you clean. Okay. That, that was the folk who actually been through something. I don't know about the rest of you. That's the folk who've been, that's the folk who know that if your text messages, your emails will ever get thrown out there, you would lose your job. That's for the folk in the building who know full and well that you did not complete the project your boss asked you to complete, but you still got the job. That's for the folk in the building who know you cheated in college like all the other folk in college did too, but you still got that, that degree. You know full and well your wife or your husband should have ran away from you about 15 years ago, but oh, I thank God that when you stay connected to him, he'll keep you clean. Not only does he say you'll have clean clothes, but he says, remember, remember in the beginning he said, I know your deeds, I know your reputation. Jesus says, watch this, look at the text. He says, trust me, 
Because you know, I know your deeds and reputation, but when I go talk to my father, this is verse number five, when I go talk to the father, look what he says, I'll bring your name up. I don't even. Remember I told you earlier, in order to get into the temple, that they had their names, they had to pay for the name to be written on a tablet so that they had to pay extra to Caesar so they wouldn't die because they refused to worship Caesar. Jesus says, don't you worry about your name being on Caesar's book. (laughs) Because when I go talk to the Father, I'll bring your name up. That was a back-arching braid toss and praise right there because my name has been brought up in some wrong rooms. But I thank God that when Jesus talks to the Father... He brings my name. Are you excited about that? Because I'm excited about it. I'm excited that in the midst of all the lies that have been spread about you, that when Jesus talks to the Father, he'll bring your... I wish I had a witness of this Anglican church. I know that ain't a promise of a house. I know that ain't a promise. But I'm thankful unto God that when Jesus talks to the Father, he'll mention my name. Am I talking to anybody in the building who says, God, I'll repent for my sin. I'll repent for what I've done wrong. Because when you talk to the Father, bring my name up. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because what that tells you, Jesus says, is I'm putting your name, hallelujah, in the book of life. So that when death occurs here, your name is in God's life book. I wish I had a witness that your the first death won't matter because you're going to have brand new life on the other side. And so I'll, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my faith and turn from their wicked ways, Jesus says, I'll bring you. I'm not talking to anybody that, God, I repent for what I've done wrong because I want you to bring my name up. Whew. We often want to be mentioned in tables in secular organizations. You want to be mentioned at a table for a job. You want to be mentioned at a table for a wedding. You want to be mentioned at a table at a bank. But baby, if you put my name on God's mind, I wish I had somebody, that I'll jump the line for the job. If you put my name on God's mind, I'll jump. Am I talking to anybody in the building that he'll reduce the interest rate because he knows my name? He'll reduce the, I wish I had somebody. He'll double my salary because he knows my name. I wish I had somebody in the building. God, put my name on your mind. That's a place to shout that Jesus says, I'll never leave your name out. So what? Why don't we rejoice over that? Because we love bending at the altar of people's opinion. We love being miserable. We love scrolling on social media hoping that somebody is talking about you. What I'm telling you right now, when you trust the Lord, he's talking about you. I said when you trust in Jesus, I'm trying to leave that, he's talking about you. But we love, we love everybody else talking about us. We love the miserable nature of subtweets and substatuses. And they, are they, I want to enrich and encourage you. I want you to get so consumed that Jesus is thinking about you. I want you to get so consumed that Jesus got your name on his lips, that when you repent unto God, he puts your name in front of the Father. So how do I get there, Pastor Justin? Can I give you this really quickly? Number one, I want you 
to realize this principle. Number one, what they say is not more valuable than what you know. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. I said, what they say is not more valuable than what you know. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down for yourself, what are five things that are true about you? And I want you to think about it, because, like, I'm going to get to something else. What are five things that are true about you? Your mother, your father. What are true? Then I want you to do this. What are five lies that have been told about you? Now, let, me, let me pause here. A lot of us immediately can think of all the lies, but won't rejoice over the truth. This is what God has said. I can't, ugh. Because you feel like you're tooting your own horn. You feel arrogant. No, when you name what God has spoken over your life, you are affirming that I trust what God has already said to me. Why is it that you can remember the lies quicker than you remember the truth? What they've said is not more important than what you know. Secondly, overthinking doesn't play fair. So don't play. I'll say it again. Overthinking does not play fair. So don't play. Anxiety about what other people think about you leads you to overthink. Overthinking needs an overhaul because overthinking doesn't play fair. You have thought about 50 different ways somebody's going to try to ruin your life instead of rejoicing that the Lord said you will live. Number three, be grateful that you have a spiritual gift. When God made you, he said, you can bear this part of me. When is the last time you thank God that you're gifted? No, 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 no. I mean, seriously. When is the last time you thanked God that God gave you a piece of himself? But you can think about all the things you can't do. I'm not able to do this. Can't have this. I haven't had a kid. I'm not married yet. Life looks like. You can think of all the things you can't do. But when's the last time you said, God, I thank you that you gifted me with the gift of faith. I thank you, you've gifted with a gift. I thank you, you've gifted. Because maybe the, the, the anecdote to your anxiety is your gratitude. Whew, okay. The anecdote to your anxiety is your gratitude. When is the last time you were grateful that God saw fit to give you a piece of himself? Lastly and finally, self-care starts with self-talk. Be kind to yourself. Everybody else isn't. You be kind to you. Because maybe the reason we're mean to others is you, because all you, you're just practicing to others what you've done to yourself. That was so good. Maybe the reason we are snippy and snarky at others, maybe the reason we throw people away is because that's what you've been doing to yourself. You looked in the mirror this morning and said how fat you are, how ugly you are, what you can't wear. It doesn't look nice on you. I got to put a different shaper on. My hair don't work nice. My, I should have got a haircut. My hair didn't fit like this. Man, this suit is too tight. I mean, I got to go to the gym. You beat yourself down 55 times. So when you come to church, what are you looking for? How's this nigga going to beat me down further? Because all I've done all day was tear myself down. Self-care starts with self-talk. No, I'm still made in his image. The bigger the ball, the better the bounce. The blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice. My hairline is crooked, baby. Y'all going to go on a different path with me today. Because I don't know where my hair is going, neither do you. My track is hanging, baby. I'm starting a new style. 
My lashes are too big. Maybe I'm going to fan you. If the air conditioner don't work, just come sit by me and I'll fan you with my whatever. But what would happen if you started taking care of yourself with your own talk and didn't wait for other people to do it for you? Be kind to yourself. Here's why. You know the one true God. You know the one true Jesus. You hold on to the one true gospel. You know, early on in my leadership, I, I wouldn't. This is a growth area for me that I've grown immensely in. Early on in my leadership, I've been, I've been pastoring for some 15, no, 10 years now. I would never admit when I was wrong. I didn't care if I knew it was wrong. I found a way to justify that I, what I said was right. And, early, and, and as I've grown, I've learned to admit I missed it there. Man, I missed it. Man, that did not, oh, I thought it was going to go a different way. Because here's what I've learned. I'm secure enough in me to know that when I'm wrong, I will never let that happen again. But if you can't admit where you're wrong, you won't learn how to make it right. People who are too arrogant to admit when they're wrong cannot be followed. Because you think your way is the only way when the way we're supposed to be following is Proverbs 3, the Lord's way. That's why I love that book, Leaders Eat Last. Because here's the thing. When you admit where you're wrong, you generate responsibility for you and all of those who follow you. Admitting when you're wrong opens the door to collective responsibility. Admitting where you're wrong opens the door to responsibility, where you can be more responsible, where you can teach others, and where you can learn. It's an opportunity we have all the time, not just applied to leadership, but applied to your word. When is the last time you looked at God and said, God, I'm, I'm sorry for not holding on to your word? When's the last time you told God, God, I was wrong for when I didn't trust what you said to me? God, I was wrong for thinking I had it all without you. And you know what Jesus says? It's cool. Because a little while ago, my body was broken. My, my body was broken and my blood was spilled. And the reason you don't have to worry, you don't have to pay for it, you don't have to pay for when you were wrong is because I've already been broken for that. He says, you don't have to pay for it. I stayed on that cross for three and a half hours because your sin was that strong. What would happen for you to trust that Jesus says, you ain't got to pay for it all. Trust me and I'll take you places eyes have never seen, ears have never heard. Church of Sardis tells us they have security in their security systems. They had security in their, rep security in their reputation. May your security be in one thing. Jesus, he died for that. And you know I rejoice? He's coming back again. And I want to be in that book. Even if I'm not on your Facebook, in your book, in your journal, I would love to be in his book than to be on somebody else's lips. What do you care more about today? As you go to the table, I want you to consider who have you been worshiping? And may you crucify that altar and rejoice where your name is. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I want you to ask this, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me?